Bienvenidos, marhaban, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Never Never Podcast, exploring the Dresden Files series by Jim Butcher. Urban fantasy done right, dirty Harry Potter, as Jim calls it. I'm your host, Christine. I'll be releasing multi-chapter analysis episodes for each book, along with occasional bonus episodes of a more topical nature. The Never Never podcast may include spoilers from all sources, including the books, short stories, graphic novels, blog posts, interviews, and panels from the butcher himself. The Dresden Files features mature themes, including sexuality, fantasy violence, and very real violence. Also, I'm terrible at watching my language, so the Never Never podcast is intended for mature audiences, despite having playful, if not childish, tendencies. So let's draw our circle and step through the way to the Never Never. Episode 1, A Striking Tableau. Recorded May 22nd, 2020, covering Stormfront, Book 1, Chapters 1 and 2. In this episode, well, the basics, as we're just starting off, The Dresden Files is about a wizard private detective in modern Chicago, investigating supernatural crimes and trying to save people from the monsters who prey upon mortal humans. I've given each chapter a moniker, as in the text they're simply named Chapter 1, Chapter 2, etc., which makes it easy to lose track. The entire franchise is told to us in the first-person perspective, meaning I did, rather than third-person he did. It's fast-paced, easy to consume, but its emotional depth is never shallow. One of my favorite aspects of Jim Butcher's writing in this series is his mercenary efficiency. Every word in every sentence must move the plot forward, or as naturally as possible give us crucial character or world-building information, which will affect the choices the characters make. Otherwise, it's gotta go. In this, Jim is, even in his first novel, a master. I blame Debbie Chester, and I think Jim probably does too. Now before we tuck in properly, I have a disclaimer that doesn't really belong anywhere. Um, I confess, I know next to nothing about noir detective stories. I've read modern procedural crime thrillers, and my mom loves Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie, shows like Murder, She Wrote. Um, the closest I've come to noir before reading The Dresden Files was watching Dick Tracy and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, two literally cartoonish examples of the genre. So apologies, there won't be a ton of comparisons beyond the melodramatic stereotypes floating around in the zeitgeist. So something I've noticed, every book takes place thematically in a season. Stormfront is set in the spring, representing the new beginning of a first book. Now, I've never been to Chicago. Um, incidentally, Jim says he hadn't either when he wrote this, but I, I do know that the climate in the American Midwest is dominated by the Great Lakes. They are so big, one couldn't hope to see the other side. Um, I've been told they even have small waves, which is weird to me, having grown up on the Pacific coast. There's also something called the lake effect, where winds coming into the city from Lake Michigan significantly cool the air, which is part of why it's so damn cold there most of the year. But in spring, as the sun heat, sun, blah, but in spring, as the sun heats the water with longer and longer days, evaporation can indeed create massive storms. 
So Stormfront is a book of introductions. In addition to telling a compelling, immersive story with engaging and fleshed out characters, it must introduce us to the Dresden Files as a whole. Jim Butcher planned from the beginning a 20 novel series with an apocalyptic trilogy capstone. Big shoes to grow into. Like a thoughtful lover, Jim takes our hand and reassures us by starting small. Though never slow. Stormfront is the perfect title for both this book and the series. We know from later books that his, this adventure is hardly the first deadly battle Harry has faced. His old tutor slash abuser, uh, Justin, and the creature he worked for would have been epic for any wizard, let alone uh, an apprentice teenager like Harry was at the time. So since leaving his true mentor, Ebenezer's care, Harry has fought trolls and the like, but Stormfront's warlock antagonist Shadow Man, who uses the spring storms to cast way above his weight class, is the first well-matched magical opponent Harry faces in his adult career as the only professional wizard in the Yellow Pages. Um, for you youngins, that's the fat book delivered each year in a plastic bag that these days we all put directly into the recycling bin. Why do they still put out phone books again? Anyway, this story is indeed the storm front that's rolling into the Dresdenverse, and each book ramps up the stakes and forces Harry to level up, building knowledge and magical skill, and collecting more personal power, mightier allies, and even mightier foes. Now, with no more ado, here is your synopsis. Chapter 1. Harry Dresden, Wizard Detective. Harry's in his office, and the mail carrier comes knocking, poking fun at the sign on his office door. Harry Dresden, Wizard. Lost items found. Paranormal investigations. Consulting. Advice. Reasonable rates. No love potions, endless purses, parties, or other entertainment. Now, the mail carrier gets sassy, and Harry grabs his mail and shuts the door. Of course, it's a late notice. Um, Harry's broke and grumpy and muses to us about a previous case and the modern world's relationship with the supernatural, one of ignorance, if not ignorance. The phone rings. A nervous woman asks if Harry can, find, uh, can help her find something she's lost. What luck? That happens to be his specialty. What has she lost? Uh, her husband. Harry says the honest and prudent thing, that she should go to the police, and she backpedals. Uh, they can't, uh, I haven't, and almost hangs up. Now, Harry stalls. Hang on, what's your name? And hesitantly, she hedges. Call me Monica. Now, Harry explains that those woke to wizards know that one's name holds capital P power. Harry diplomatically invites Monica to come to his office to discuss the sensitive nature of the case and whether or not he could help or point her to help. No charge. That makes him grit his teeth, but she accepts and they set a time. As he sets the phone back in its cradle, it rings again, making him jump. Quick mention of Harry's complicated relationship to technology and he picks up. It's Lieutenant Karen Murphy, the tough as nails Cupid doll detective for special investigations, the X-Files of Chicago PD for whom he consults occasionally. She needs him at the Hotel Madison. She's got bodies. And if he hasn't had lunch yet, he shouldn't. Huh, that's not ominous at all. 
He leaves a note for Monica, his 2.30, and beats feet to the hotel to take a look and be back for their appointment. Chapter 2. Murphy and the Broken Heart Murders Harry and Murphy meet outside the hotel, and we see that he is tall, dark, and lean, and she's short, blonde, and athletic, Aikido trophies and all. She gives him guff about his duster and very nearly triggers a soul gaze, the mind meld that happens when you look a wizard in the eye too long. But then she looks away to avoid it. Harry and Murphy wordlessly race each other to the door. It's chivalry versus feminism, neck and neck. Well, Harry's taller and faster. Murphy glares like you do when a friend is being endearly annoying, endearingly, <clears throat> like you do when a friend is being endearingly annoying. There's a comfortable silence ride up the elevator, but he can sense she's tense about something else, and it makes him nervous. She takes a deep breath, like she's gonna hold it until they leave, and they go in. The hall smells like blood. The room is a ruddy, sensual, ostentatious suite, probably perfect for banging before the smell. Champagne was had, small satin fabrics were discarded on the floor, bang music was on the stereo, Detective Carmichael, Murphy's overweight, skeptical, deceptively sharp partner, calls it the love suite, saying he'll have a bucket ready for Harry when he sees the main event. It was horrific, and Harry had to force himself to look and take in details without running screaming from the room. The lovers' hearts had literally exploded out of their chests mid-coitus. Ribs were snapped outward, bright red blood and bits of flesh were everywhere, on the ceiling. Harry quickly absorbs their physical descriptions, cracks a joke, and pukes. Someone had used magic, the powerful force of life and creation, to murder two people. It was obscene, and a violation of the White Council's first law of magic. Murphy asks for Harry's take. He uses the details he noticed to weave a story. The lovers were having a romantic night in, and during their climax, a literal explosion of their hearts out of their chests. But was it magic? Yep. Not evocation, an immediate and elemental magic. That's line of sight only. This was, quote, Thaumaturgy, I said. As above, so below. Make something happen on a small scale and give it the energy to happen on a large scale." Unquote. Using a sample of blood or hair like a voodoo doll, it could have been done from just about anywhere. Check out her hairstylist, maybe? Also, the killer was intimately connected to the lovers. Likely a wife or girlfriend due to... Uh, mm, let me see here. Ah, uh, uh, yes. A woman's superior ability to hate. Wow, Harry. And, and wow, Jim. Uh, yeah, Murphy doesn't like it either. So throughout, Carmichael throws out various incredulous remarks of the yeah, right variety, keeping the tension of the scene high, if not a tad annoying. Anyway, Murph, who are these two? Harry asks. What a question. The woman is Jennifer Stanton, a swank sex worker employed by the brothel escort service, The Velvet Room, owned by... Bianca, a powerfully connected vampire who would never cross a human wizard, not with the big bad white council looming. Right. Right. And the man? Tommy Tom, 
bodyguard to gentleman Johnny Marcone. Rhymes with scone, not baloney. Who happens to be the newish honcho of Chicago's organized criminal activities. An employee to a vampire and an employee to the mafia, murdered by a wizard with magic. Well, shit. This just got politically awkward. Besides which, just looking into how a dark magic ritual like this is done could land Harry in serious trouble. Mortal trouble. See, the White Council has Harry on a kind of probation called the Doom of Damocles. Pretentious wizards. And if Harry is suspected of dark magic, it could literally mean his head. Anyway, Harry said he couldn't do this, but that's bullshit. Find out how it was done. Help me, Dresden. You're my only hope. And now he can't say no. Maybe the council won't find out? Oh no! Harry's gonna be late! He flies down the stairs and hits the street running. Gotta get to the office. He slows down so he's not out of breath and sweaty for his appointment. And because he might be lacking on the cardio... Harry's suddenly boxed in by some goons, one named Hendrix, though Harry calls him Cujo, and ushered into a car with... Marcone. Oh, shit. Which brings us to the context section. So here we discuss the series' overarching plot, groundwork, character intros, world building, as well as any meta aspects, Mythology, callbacks to previous books, foreshadowing, and theory. So, in Chapter 1, Harry Dresden, Wizard Detective. So, the first-person narrative vehicle makes our journey through Harry's story an engrossing one. His inner thoughts tell us all about his personality and much about his identity. The core pieces of his backstory and resultant values which make up his self. It allows us to connect and relate to our hero in a way the common third-person perspective simply doesn't. The, the farther we get into the series, though, the more we realize that his inner monologue, this diary, may not be entirely reliable. Occasionally, Harry forgets. He deduces incorrectly. And while his honesty may not provide for him to lie to us, he will take after the Fae and tell selective truths. Occasionally even to himself. Ghost Story, uh, book 13, is entirely built on this premise. These omissions we must suss out on our own, using the concrete evidence we're given. The undeniable facts of his behavior, his actions, and the way he treats people reveal aspects of his character of which even he may not be aware. I find it fascinating that the first thing we learn about Harry is the most important skill not for his spellcasting, but for his detective work, perception. Immediately, we see Harry doing what he does best, listening. Literally the first words, the first subject-verb combo in first chapter of the first book is, I heard. Later, he'll tell us about the, the capital L listening he does, but for now, it's, it seems to be just with his ears. The second sentence tells us all we need to know about our narrator protagonist and the world he inhabits. Quote, he didn't sound right. Unquote. Now that may sound simple, but it indicates that something's off in Harry's world. It's not that the mail carrier, the he in that quote, is a secret villain, which he's not, or even that he bears bad news, which he does. 
Now, the mail carrier is an average dude working a government job who doesn't believe in wizards. He's normal. It's Harry who doesn't belong in this mundane world. Sure, he works, connecting him to the human economy of Chicago, but even his private investigator profession implies a bygone era. I read some chapters and I can see the black and white film, I hear the saxophone music behind his moody, ever-present narration, which stops just short of calling his mysterious female client Legs. Uh, it's Harry, chivalrous wizard of the White Council, tangled with the Fae, a vampire, and eventually every other Never Never Accords signatory on offer. Harry's not right, or so he deeply believes of himself. Inside, Harry is kind and maintains his integrity with a solid, albeit revisitable, honor code. Um, he's also a profoundly damaged, achingly lonely, short-tempered, morally outraged protector, wrapped in the overcompensating personality of a swaggering, authority-flouting, snarky lone wolf. Even so, Harry has a strange but genuine self-confidence from existing deep in the hidden world of magic. He knows something we don't know. What we don't know about magic would and actually does fill whole libraries. Um, and while he doesn't know everything, in fact, he's often flying by the seat of his pants, he'll never let you see it. A wizard has his image to maintain. So despite his power, Harry Dresden is struggling financially because he's honest. The client from his last case obviously wanted a supernatural haunting to be happening, but Harry wouldn't bilk the guy and pretend to exercise his house. Those who don't know about his world, the muggles of the Dresdenverse, he suffers like one would an annoying child prodding at subjects too adult for them to com comprehend. He takes the mail carrier's jibes more or less gracefully at first. Eventually, he just wants his damn mail, which reveals the coping mechanism he uses to combat both fear and insecurity, his signature cutting, often juvenile wit. Quote, An actual wizard, he asked, grinning, as though I should let him in on the joke. Spells and potions, demons and incantations, subtle and quick to anger, not so subtle." Unquote. Harry's response there hints at another huge facet of Harry's character. He is forever the bull in a china shop, and not only is he six foot eight, that's a tad shy of 200 centimeters for you enviable metric system users, not only does he walk around with an almost lit-fused disposition toward both perceived injustice and any authority figure he hasn't chosen or accepted, but his uncompromising dark hero shtick often takes tense situations from bad to worse. Now just consider the first line of Blood Rites, book six, quote, The building was on fire, and it wasn't my fault, unquote. Eh. Enough said. Now the plot. The exchange with the mail carrier that opens the book is a beautiful show-don't-tell introduction to our setting, theme, mood, and primary protagonist, Harry Dresden. It exposits the modern world, its familiar banality, and that Harry is an interloper in it. By the end of it, we know that Harry is a wizard, that wizards are real, and that they still have to pay the rent. The exchange with Monica is our introduction to the missing persons plot. Uh, 
I love Harry's petulant response to Monica's choice to withhold her last name. Before he discovers it, in his thoughts, he calls her Monica Husband Missing, Monica No Last Name, Monica Missing Man, and Monica Ask Me No Questions. See, the thing is, he knows why she did it. He even admits that it's wisdom. A wizard can hurt you with your true name. Um, I think he hates that it's true that wizards, himself included, could use their magic so underhandedly. So he takes it out on Call Me Monica in his head. Um, next, we are likewise telephonically introduced to Karen Murphy. Harry's foil in almost every book, at first an antagonist, occasionally a sidekick, but soon a staunch ally, though she's wary of him after Ghost Story, book 13. Here we get the skinny on Lieutenant Murphy. Her voice is cool, crisp, businesslike. She's a detective who deals with murders, among many, many other unusual crimes and incidents. Harry consults for her department on the weirdest of them, but when Murphy insists that his appointment can wait, we get the sense that she feels entitled to his time. Her needs come first. At this point in their relationship, he's an asset to her, and Harry knows and resents that. When the first words out of her mouth are to the effect of, I need you here in 10 minutes, he responds with wounded sarcasm, quote, Why, Lieutenant Murphy, I gushed, overflowing with saccharin. It's good to hear from you, too. It's been so long. Oh, they're fine, fine. And your family? See, he wants a personal relationship with her. And she shuts that shit down. <laughs> and, uh, and this is a big part of their initial conflict. So my favorite characterization in this chapter comes from Murphy's warning to Harry. Quote, How bad are we talking here, Murph? Her voice softened, and that scared me more than any images of gore or violent death could have. And then, it's bad, Harry. Please don't take too long, unquote. And here is Harry's Achilles heel. A woman needs his help. Now we'll talk more about Harry and his somewhat controversial relationship to women later. For now, we'll end this chapter's analysis with the tension builder that Jim gives us. He believes he's in danger from the magical killer, so he's taking precautions. Though he doesn't say it until chapter 9, which we'll feature in a future episode. Wizards are hard to kill, but only when they're prepared. We end the chapter with the great line, quote, Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that there isn't an invisible demon about to eat your face. Unquote. Chapter 2. Murphy and the Broken Heart Murders. R.I.P. Jennifer Stanton and Tommy Tom. Oh, what a scene. Our first glimpse of magic, merging two of the most basic yet uncomfortable topics in life, sex and death. This image has seared itself on my mind's eye since I first read Stormfront almost 10 years ago, which is why I pulled from this passage the title of this episode, um, the description is visceral and haunting. Quote, They were on the bed. She was astride him, body leaned back, back bowed like a dancer's, the curves of her breasts making a lovely outline. He stretched beneath her, a lean and powerfully built man, arms reaching out and grasping at the satin sheets. 
gathering them in his fists. Had it been an erotic photograph, it would have made a striking tableau. Except that the lovers' rib cages on the upper left side of their torsos had expanded outward, through their skin, the ribs jabbing out like ragged, snapped knives. Arterial blood had sprayed out of their bodies, all the way to the mirror on the ceiling. Along with pulped, gelatinous masses of flesh that had to be what remained of their hearts. Unquote. <sighs> Powerful writing. Um, Harry jokes and pukes. Uh, his conscience and stomach are rebelling against making light of the situation. Not just the fact that two people are dead, but they were, but that they were murdered with magic, like bludgeoning someone to death with a Botticelli. Um, moving on. So there's so much world building in this chapter. Uh, we get rapid fire mentions of the White Council, the laws of magic, the doom of Damocles, the never-never, basic sense of how magic works in the Dresden verse, including the subcategories of evocation and thaumaturgy. There are powerful vampires who don't mess with wizards, and the mafia, which has played a huge part in the popular image of Chicago since Prohibition, has changed under new management and will play a part in this story too. All this in less than 10 pages, while moving the plot forward. Love that mercenary efficiency. I've mentioned it twice now that Harry believes the vampires, these being of the as yet unnamed Red Court, fear the White Council. How very wrong he will be proven. And we'll touch on this again when we cover chapter nine, Bianca and the Hunger, and probably take a deeper dive in later books when the war with the Red Court kicks off. Um, I have other future episodes planned to profile these huge topics like the White Council, the laws of magic, the political landscape of the never-never, uh, the hard magic system Butcher uses for wizardry, among a plethora of other topics. Um, I began writing a section on Harry's uh, quote-unquote chivalry and the sexism in the story at large, and soon realized it will also need to be its own episode. Um, for now, Suffice it to say that Harry's attitude towards women is hashtag problematic, though not irredeemable, and I still love him as a character. So instead, let's look at Harry and Murphy. This chapter gives us the foundation for the dynamic between Harry and Murphy, the central relationship in the Dresden Files, and arguably the most important relationship in Harry's life to date. Now, perfectly valid cases can be made for Thomas, Molly, and certainly Maggie, but I am, for the moment, planting my flag here with Karen, the first supporting character we meet. She is more than a colleague, though they work together. She's more than an ally, though they stand together. She's more than a war buddy, though they fight side by side. She's more than a friend or eventual lover. Karen Murphy is the cornerstone of Harry's chosen family concept we'll get into at length when he reveals more about his childhood. So let's take a quick super spoilery peek at what's in store for their relationship. Though their start in the first couple of books is shaky, uh, tested by the misunderstandings that result from their inability to be open with one another. Harry can't tell a mortal about the White Council that just isn't done. 
And Murphy can't let Harry in all the way to her police investigations. That just isn't done. She even arrests him uh, here and in Full Moon, book two. Um, and besides, they both have monumental trust issues. As they slowly build that trust, they organically grow closer. They test the waters, they flirt, but Harry is sprung over Susan for like forever. And so Karen takes Kincaid, the bodyguard of the archive we meet in Death Masks, book five, um, as a lover or as a man toy, as she likes to refer to him. Harry finds himself seething with jealousy uh, and has to face that despite his heartbreak over Susan, he must have feelings for Karen to feel so possessive. Um, but does Harry open himself up and deal with his feelings like an adult? Never! Harry takes up with his boss, Anastasia, instead. Um, plus, Harry has a super hot fallen angel in his head for a while, and Lash is constantly trying to seduce him. Um, so then, after all of that falls apart, finally, and changes, book 12, right when they were talking about it openly, like real-life grown-ups, and about to give it a go, Harry goes and gets himself shot, leaving Karen positively bereft. Oh, Karen, I love you. I'm sorry. Anyway, <clears throat> she shaves her head and starts boxing with immortal Vikings, like you do. Um, seeing Harry's ghost, not believing it's him, uh, then all of a sudden he's back from the dead, but working for the bad guys. It, it almost breaks her, but she has to try. And by the end of Skin Game, book 15, where the series is for the moment, uh, until July 15th, 2020, they are past the point of no return, and Karen is determined not to let him get away again. And we shall see what the next two installments have to say. So their romance is a case study in the slow burn, as are so many other elements, characters, and plots in the Dresden Files. Whether they qualify as doomed or star-crossed is at this point kind of up in the air, and I'll leave that up to you to speculate. So here's our first theory, if you want to call it that. It's more of a suspicious passage that leaves me with some hanging questions. Um, in the hotel elevator, quote, My shadow and Murphy's fell on the floor and almost looked as though they were sprawled there. There was something about it that bothered me, a nagging little instinct that I blew off as a case of nerves. Steady, Harry. Unquote. Now, it may be an allusion to the shadow man that Harry will face at the end of the book, but it also smacks of foreshadowing to me. Huh, foreshadowing, shadowing. Anyway, but, but of what? Foreshadowing of what? Sprawled may denote dead, uh, inc indicating their fates as warriors, you know, live by the staff and the P90, die by the staff and the P90. Or um, it could indicate a sexual relationship, right? Lovers are often described as sprawling together. Um, Harry's unease could mirror his personal distrust of romance after Elaine, his first love. Or is it something much darker and more sinister? Now, I have a notion about that last possibility, but it will require more digging 
and comparative analysis. And so I will save that for a future episode as well. So tell me what you think in the comments. I will be reading them all. Um, and so that's it for my first episode. Next time we'll look at chapters three through five of Stormfront, book one of the Dresden Files. Um, arigato, Dankeschön. Thank you all kindly for listening. Thank you to my supporters, without whom this project would not be possible. You know who you are. Uh, thank you to my inspirations, a few of whom are linked below. Those literary podcast giants on whose mighty shoulders I attempt to balance. Um, and thanks to Jim Butcher for creating such a thrilling and insightful series, up about which I simply cannot shut. Uh, the Never Never podcast is hosted on Podbean, more platforms to follow. Please follow, share, comment, tell me what you liked, what you didn't like, and what you'd like to see from me in the future. Um, you can contact me at the Never Never podcast at gmail.com, and I will see you next time. Take care.